Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You're listening to The 30 Podcast. Here's your host, Jazz Kang. What's up, Dub Nation? Recording this on Thursday. Uh, the Warriors in action taking on the Timberwolves tonight. We'll get into that in a little bit. But first, don't forget, subscribe to our podcast network. You can catch us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, you name it, we are there. And of course, go to goldenstateofmind.com for all your Warriors needs. Myself and Brady will have you covered. Brady, off the pod this week, we kind of upgraded him. Have <laughs> one with me today. I'm excited to say we have uh, Ben Golliver. He works for the Washington Post as a national NBA writer. And his new book, going to hit the shelves on May the 4th. You don't want to miss this one. It is called Bubble Ball, Inside the NBA's Fight to Save a Season. That's going to be released on May the 4th, but you can start ordering your copies now. Uh, ben, first off, thanks for doing this. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm, I'm glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, let's jump into, the, into this first. Last season, we're going into, I mean, you know, everything shut down March 11th and the Rudy Gobert, the infamous, why are you touching the microphones, Rudy? But that's another topic for another day. But, uh, you know, the, the season shuts down, you know, you're all, your job, obviously working for the Washington Post, you're, you're covering the league and, and the NBA has really come into its own, I think, just on, as a national brand on, uh, you know, in the last five or six seasons in terms of the, the TV revenue. And we see the, the contracts go up. Obviously, that's why Kevin Durant ended up with the Warriors when we saw that after the 2016 season. But you're going into this. And from a professional sense, once things started to get rolling with the league, looking at using Orlando and, and setting things up there, how was it for you? Kind Were you hesitant at all to, to join the the media and be a part of the bubble heading into it? Well, I was really of two minds. First of all, I had already been writing about the idea of a bubble before the NBA shut down because I was starting to see these reports out of China and seeing uh, you know, the development of the coronavirus. And I was like, oh, no, like, what is this going to mean for basketball? And for me, it was very, very important that they crown a champion. Um, I love the history of the game. I mean, it was the 74th NBA season and they had always crowned a champion every year prior to that. So the idea that we were going to have a season potentially suspended in the middle of it just kind of made me nauseous. It made me sick. I didn't want to see, you know, all those the players, the hours that they have put into that season, just go for not. So I was brainstorming in my own mind, how could they even do this? I was writing columns like right around the same time of the shutdown saying like, oh, we got to go find a way to save this thing, go to Vegas, do it like summer league, protect all the players on the strip. You know, I was throwing out all these uh, concepts and to be honest, a lot of people were calling me crazy at the time. And I think that was totally valid because this was an insane solution, right? I mean, let's bring a whole bunch of Hall of Famers to Disney World of all places, uh, you know, cut them off from the outside world with like three or four different layers of security and police officers, monitor their every movement with technology and video cameras and everything, and just try to uh, crown a champion out of that. So when I first, you know, saw the proposals coming together, I was really excited that they were going to accomplish my goal, which is, all right, let's make sure we have a winner. But I was also, you know, fairly nervous from a health standpoint. You know, I went into a pretty strict personal lockdown, you know, starting in March where I would go and essentially just walk around my neighborhood. That was almost everything I did for months and months. Otherwise, I was just at home working, 
I'm trying to keep up whatever job I could here at the Washington Post in terms of, you know, just writing about things, uh, but not going into public, having all my food delivered, you know, doing all those kinds of things to stay safe. So the idea of going into a bubble where there was going to be hundreds of people and, and hundreds of professional athletes where, you know, one person might try to go sneak a, a Postmates order or have somebody <laughs> in their hotel room and it puts everybody at risk. It was definitely a daunting proposition. But um, as we got closer to me, it just kind of felt like a golden ticket. I mean, it was such a rare opportunity and I, the FOMO started to kick in and I was thinking, look, if this actually works and they make it to the 2020 NBA finals and I'm not there and I'm watching from home, I'm not going to be able to kind of live with myself, you know? So I consulted a bunch of doctors before I went down there and ultimately made the decision to, um, to, you know, fly across country, you know, during the middle of the pandemic, which was kind of a harrowing proposition and then settle into Disney world for 93 days and 92 nights. And in hindsight, it does seem pretty surreal uh, that that's how I sort of spent a big chunk of my pandemic, but I'm glad I did because it was one of the most rewarding professional experiences of my career. And it was just awesome to see high level basketball up close in those gyms. You know, I was sitting courtside feeling like Rihanna or Jack Nicholson, just having <laughs> this unbelievable view uh, of high level players. And uh, you know, so from that standpoint, you know, I got over it pretty quickly, put it that way. When you first when you first got to Orlando and you you know you you traveled like you mentioned you know going from from Los Angeles over to, over to over to uh, Florida and and you get in into like you're getting into the bubble, what were your first thoughts going into it? Like, did you have concerns about the safety? Were you looking at oh my god, what am I going to go crazy sitting in my room because you had to quarantine upon arrival? What was the initial thing like for you once you once you got onto onto the campus really of, of where things were set up? Well, my first thought was, wow, I really feel kind of like a, a hamster in a lab, you know, because I was just getting bombarded with media requests from around the world. And essentially, it was a lot of rubberneckers wanting to ask me if I thought I was going to die. You know, that was pretty much the basis of the interviews. Then they might say it more politely, but there was so much curiosity in this experiment when we first got there. And so I tried to document it as thoroughly as possible. You know, we had a, a week long quarantine for the first seven days we got down there. We couldn't leave our hotel rooms. And so I put up some videos of myself walking back and forth in the room and, you know, just kind of showing off the food that I was eating. And the level of interest was insane. I mean, for a simple hotel room tour, it's like 100,000 views on Twitter, right? I mean, it's like a pretty boring hotel room with two beds, a bathroom and a long desk. I mean, there's not much else to it, right? But everybody had that curiosity factor of like, what are these people really getting themselves into? And so that was part of the culture shock, right? It was kind of going from being someone who's usually behind the scenes as a writer and um, you know, documenting the action on the court to now really being a part of the story in a different way. And that's part of why I wrote this book, Bubble Ball, in the first person. I want to bring the reader along with me as I'm acclimating to that process. And once they let us out of the uh, quarantine period, I mean, it was like kind of the basketball garden of Eden in a way, right? Like you're just walking around this campus. Like one of the first people I saw was Donovan Mitchell, all-star guard for the Utah Jazz, just kind of saying hi to the media members. You, you stroll down a little bit further and you see a whole bunch of referees, including Scott Foster, uh, you know, kind of one of the most famous veteran referees playing pickleball of all things. Uh, you know, you keep walking and hey, look, there's the Lakers fishing uh, off the dock and JaVale McGee has got this gigantic uh, fishing pole that he's using to, to hook whatever lake fish they've got out there. And you're just thinking like, where have I landed? You know, and this is so strange. And as time passed, you know, it definitely got into very rigorous routines of testing, of, uh, you know, staying socially distant, of always having to wear the masks, of dealing with the afternoon thunderstorms and the super hot heat and humidity there in Orlando. 
and then just watching enough basketball to make your eyes bleed. So I think the real drag was just the endurance factor. I mean, this was a long, tough experience. When I was down there, you know, I, I put on weight. My anxiety level was definitely up. Uh, I slept a lot worse. Uh, I would say I felt the feelings of isolation being cut off from the outside world. I mean, we couldn't drive cars. We couldn't even walk two miles off campus. I mean, it was a, a really strict experience. And those kinds of things do play with your mind a little bit. And, and so I can vouch for a lot of what the players were saying in terms of how challenging um, that experience was. And I didn't even have to deal with the stress of actually playing the games. So uh, I think, you know, looking back on it, I have very fond memories uh, because, uh, you know, again, it's something I'm going to be able to tell, you know, generations of basketball fans to come, I think, of, of how did the NBA possibly land in Disney World? But at the same time, uh, it wasn't just this like quirky, feel good, happiest place on earth type thing. It was a real grind. When you look at like something that saved you, like you're mentioning, you know, having the having the isolation and, and, and being in the room and, and, you know, the sleepless nights. What was the one thing that that for you was like, this is worth it, like to get up every day and, and to stay there? Uh, like you mentioned, for the for the duration of, of all the way through the NBA finals, what, what is one aspect of being there that really kind of kept your sanity and kept you grounded? No, this, the easiest answer is the quality of play. You know, the, the amazing basketball players. We went there to, to watch them put on a show, and they did. It kind of felt like, uh, you know, a private screening at, like, the Sydney Opera House, or, like, I'm getting to walk through the Louvre, you know, and, and getting to see all these amazing paintings, and there's nobody else there. I mean, there were certain days, like the day of the shutdown, actually, when the Bucks decided not to take the court. I mean, the schedule was Giannis in the first game, Chris Paul, Russell Westbrook, James Harden in the second game, and then Anthony Davis, LeBron James, Damian Lillard in the third game. So you're talking about seven Hall of Famers in basically eight hours, right? And that you can watch up close, be one of the only people in the gym to see and to track their storylines as well. I mean, to me, that's just an incredible opportunity. I actually spent years and years covering the Warriors playoff runs uh, because, you know, they're the biggest story in the league, right? And so mm -hmm. uh, you, you get to watch dozens of Warriors games over those, you know, finals pushes and, and you're getting all these incredible stories about Steph and Katie when he was there and Clay and Draymond. But you really have to focus all your energy on that team while you're covering them, you know, during a normal postseason. You know, down in the bubble, I went to every single playoff game from the second round on. You know, I was able to follow all the series simultaneously because they were just kind of like next door to each other with staggered tip times. So it was the most efficient thing you could possibly imagine from a reporting standpoint. And you get to follow all the team stories uh, simultaneously with so many great players. So to me, that's what kept me going. No question about it. Um, and look, if if the quality of play hadn't been as good, if the series hadn't been as intriguing, if some of the star level players hadn't shown up, look, it probably would have been even harder and, and a tougher grind. But I have so many great basketball memories from that experience. The Luka Doncic game winner, the OG Ananobi buzzer beater, um, you know, with that cross court pass. Yeah, that was insane. Uh, yeah. Anthony Davis's Mamba shot, Bam Adebayo's block of Jason Tatum in game one. I mean, just the list goes on and on and on. Right. And. Uh, you know, to have been up close for that, I do think it's going to wind up being the most memorable postseason I've ever covered. And I think I've I've been doing this since 2007. How did you find the level of play? Like you, you said, it was a high level, but how, how long do you think it took them to to get there? Like, was it did you notice they were started to, you know, it, it, same thing as you see in any other NBA season where it'll take a couple of weeks, maybe a month for for certain teams to get going. How, how prepared were the teams once they got there? And did you find the level of play rising as you got towards the end of the of the eight game play in and then and you got into the, the first and second rounds? 
No, look, I was proven wrong. I came in there telling everybody, look, it's going to be ugly. It's going to be choppy. Like we're barely even going to be able to watch this. These guys have been off for four months and some of them haven't had access to gym. So, you know, really keep your expectations low. And what we found even really by the start of the playoffs, you know, within a couple of weeks of being down there is that, you know, guys were, you know, feeling like there was a title at stake, you know, feeling the, you know, the urgency factor. So they're playing really hard. And they're also benefiting from no travel, which I think everybody benefited from, including myself and the referees. And basically everybody I talked to said how nice it was not to have to fly around the country, you know, three or four times during a series, uh, you know, back and forth. So I thought, you know, all things considered, the quality of play was high. Now, it wasn't even, though, right? There were some teams that really struggled to recapture their regular season form, uh, particularly the Milwaukee Bucks, I would put in that category. But some other teams, you know, struggled with the adjustment. The Philadelphia 76ers kept wanting to go home. They were such a good home team all year in Philly that I think they were thrown off by playing in these empty gyms. Um, obviously, I think the, the experience wore on Houston a little bit. and They kind of combusted in the second round. And you know, Daniel House got himself kicked out. And that was a pretty memorable uh, situation there with the, the unauthorized visitor to his hotel room. So, you know, it wasn't like, you know, pristine basketball across the board, but I thought the average quality of play was really high and frankly higher than it's been here during this regular season with so many guys in and out of the lineups. And that's really where the health and safety protocols come in because, you know, teams were able to build continuity in that experience because they didn't have to worry about guys testing positive or contact tracing or anything like that. The health program works so well everybody who was down there stayed on the court the whole time, right? I mean, a lot of major stars, LeBron, Anthony Davis didn't miss a single postseason game and nor did they really have to worry about it, guys coming in and out of the lineups around them. So I think that was a key factor to the bubble success overall, uh, the health program, but also to the quality of play because these teams were able to build up and get into really good grooves. You saw that with Denver, Miami, even Boston, all those teams got into really nice places as a team with great chemistry and uh, they turned in a lot of memorable performances. Were there, did you find the sense of angst with the players as they got more, like, you know, the teams who got into the second round and, and, and later on, or, or did they become more focused on the basketball? Like you mentioned, there's a title at stake and, and they know that like a guy like LeBron James, his, his legacy is trying to build it going for title number four at that point. What, what, what was that like in terms of when you're watching the players, like, did you get a sense that some of them were growing frustrated and, and weary of being, not only away from their families, but just not even being able to go home for for that period of time. Oh, absolutely. No question. And I think that that kind of stuff started wearing on people pretty early. I mean, look, it wasn't that big of a transition for me. I live in a one bedroom apartment. I drive a Ford, right? But imagine if I had a gigantic mansion and 10 cars and some of these guys are traveling the game by helicopter, right? Mm -hmm. A little bit different if they're going to send people in that kind of, uh, you know, socioeconomic situation into living into a, uh, you know, a Disney World hotel room that's not really up to your typical, you know, Ritz or Four season standards. So these guys made some real sacrifices in terms of their quality of life. It was a real adjustment period for a lot of them. And uh, look, it, everybody didn't handle that similarly. You know, there were some guys who were like, shoot, all I care about is basketball. You know, point me towards the court. Tell me when the games are and I'll be fine. You know, John Morant memorably said, you know, I'm not a silver spoon guy. Damian Lillard kind of took a similar approach. Anthony Davis was like, look, as, as long as I could play video games in my hotel room, I'm good. Like, I don't really worry about it. But guys who had families definitely had it worse. And I think, um, you know, it just dragged on everybody the longer you were there because there was just a Groundhog's Day element to it, in part because the games were coming so quickly. They didn't spread this thing out, right? It was like basically every other day for games. 
It was a very compact and tight schedule and guys just got tired and exhausted. And let's not forget, this was during a presidential election year when, you know, there was a number of high profile, uh, you know, police incidents uh, with, with, you know, black Americans either being shot or killed. And the players were in the middle of protests before they got down there. And so these topics were really on their mind. And there was a sense of helplessness, I think, when you're in the bubble and you can't go out and protest, you know, and you feel like, oh, there's, you know, uh, situations occurring outside the bubble that you really have no control over. And maybe you're not able to kind of influence and you have to answer questions about that day after day after day. And so I, I think you saw a lot of anger uh, and frustration around the Jacob Blake shooting. And that's really what led to the shutdown because the mucky bucks were just like, look, we've had enough. We can't take the court here. But if you fast forward another month or so and you get to that Breonna Taylor ruling, I think you really had a lot of uh, mental and physical, emotional exhaustion and resignation. And the players sort of responded to that situation a little bit differently. And I think that's a good way to trace the arc there. Um, you know, guys came in, you know, really fired up and, you know, this is a new environment, you know, adrenaline's kicking and, and they're, you know, really outspoken. And then, you know, you fast forward a little bit and, you know, people just look drained and understandably so. How much of a, how close did they get, do you think, to shutting things down and saying, you know what, this is not worth it. There, there's something bigger going on outside in the rest of the country. Maybe we shouldn't be here. You know, you remember they had all the, the, the meeting, like you mentioned, the Milwaukee Bucks and, and you had, you know, players talking about it. Did that come into discussion at all that, you know what, we're going to just leave the bubble and, and like you mentioned that maybe for the first time, we're not going to reward an NBA title. Yeah, I think a number of players have talked about how close they felt like it was. I mean, I, you know, I didn't have to be in those meetings and have those exchanges, you know, the heated kind of back and forth that were involved with the players trying to iron things out after the Bucks uh, shut it down in August. I would just say, look, I mean, the money was talking very, very loudly. There was a ton of pressure on both sides to make sure the bubble worked in the first place and then got put back together when they needed to, right? If they weren't able to save the bubble, you're talking about basically a billion dollar hit, which means the owners have the opportunity to rip up the collective bargaining agreement going forward and completely overhauling the financial landscape of the sport, right? And so the players, you know, Ultimately, Adam Silver made that comment that no one's going to be forced to be down here. You know, you don't you're not forced to come and you won't be held in the bubble like you're free to go home at any time. And that was true individually for players. But collectively, that group, look, if they wanted to keep the paychecks going, if they wanted to have the sport remain close to something that they know it's been for their entire careers, they had to kind of just, you know, swallow it and get through it. I mean, there was really kind of no other way around it. There wasn't any. Um, you know, alternative solution other than financial anarchy for the sport. And so um, I was pretty confident the entire way through, even during that shutdown, that they were going to be able to find a resolution. And looking back on it, it really didn't take that long. I mean, they put the whole thing back together in basically three days. I thought they had a very intelligent, pragmatic solution by focusing on turning the arenas into voting centers, um, which, you know, I think that did play a role in the 2020 presidential election and, and getting more teams and owners on board to do that was a really smart and savvy idea. And I think they were actually the players, Chris Paul and LeBron James were getting advice from president Obama at that point in terms of how they could mm -hmm. try to spin the shutdown into something a little bit more positive going forward. And I thought they actually handled it masterfully. So there was definitely moments of hesitation on that night, Wednesday night. I was like, uh Oh, you know, I remember telling someone who was going to FedEx me some stuff. I was like, Hey, you know what? Just hold off for a couple of days. Let's make sure I'm still here. You know, like 
uh, just let, let's let things cool down a little bit. But ultimately, I wasn't surprised when they found the solution because they put an awful lot of sweat equity into the bubble in the first place. And to not get the payoff, I think it would have just been too tough for some of these competitors to swallow. Ben Golliver of the Washington Post. And a reminder, you can catch his book, Bubble Ball, Inside the NBA's Fight to Save a Season. Uh, it's going to be released officially May the 4th, but you can start ordering your copies now. Uh, you can check it out on Amazon, pretty much all anywhere you get your fix. Ben, a couple more questions uh, about the book as well. Your your creative process going into it now, once once you finish your time in, in the bubble, what what was that like for you putting it all together? And because, you know, you can't go into you don't want to release this book two years down the road. It's probably going to lose its its, its luster and, and people have moved on at that point. So for you, how crazy was it for you to sit down and be like, get the laptop up and I'm getting ready to write once you got uh, once you got finished up there and decided to go through with this? Yeah, I took about a week off after I left the bubble in October. And then I was like, look, I want to write this when it's still fresh on my mind, when I'm still you know, fully invested in this kind of as a passion project. And what was so cool was, you know, just us being in 2020, 2021 now, and, and the, the, uh, the type of technology we have available as writers, like, I was able to look back on, you know, dozens of stories that I wrote for the post, I was able to look back on thousands of photos I took, you know, hours and hours of video footage that I took on my iPhone, hundreds of tweets, that I put out while I was in the bubble and it had all these contemporaneous accounts, not to mention podcasts like this one, where I was sharing my thoughts in real time. So reconstructing the story really from March to October, I had like more material than I possibly could use, right? Because everything was documented so diligently along the way in all these different mediums and formats. And so that really helped my writing process. What I was focused on when I was writing in October, November, and December to kind of put the draft together was reflection, right? It was take a step back from the experience. Uh, what were the high mo moments? What were the key playoff turning points that I wanted to really emphasize? Who were the key figures who absolutely have to be mentioned in a book about the bubble, including like Michelle Roberts and Adam Silver and Chris Paul and, and LeBron, of course. And then, you know, really just trying to, um, you know, make sure you, you get all that, you know, into a package that's not like 600 pages, you know? And and, and telling it in a way that, you know, is a relatively quick and, and breezy read, I hope. And, you know, there's a lot of layers to this story, the social justice activism, the public health, uh, the business side that I mentioned earlier with the billions at stake, and of course, the basketball too. And so I wanted to make sure I brought in all of those layers as I was writing and, and you know, kind of multitasking that way was tricky and challenging, but that was kind of the, the beauty of the bubble and, and hopefully the, the book reflects that. Is there anybody there that you met? I know you, social time would have been super restricted just, you know, based off, off, off the accounts of, of how strict the, the NBA was with the rules. Was there somebody you met there that you connected with or somebody that you might have, you know, come across that you hadn't talked to before that, that you grew close to, like during your time in Orlando? Well, I would say my favorite one-on-one -on -one interview of the experience was actually a guy you mentioned earlier with touching the microphones, uh, Rudy Gobert. I had a pretty long sit-down when we first got there and he had been through just a crazy experience i mean separated from his mother for months after he tested positive hadn't seen her since that experience he had serious symptoms i mean you know loss of taste and smell uh you know he was you know pilloried on twitter for that video that you mentioned and uh you know i think he became the face a patient zero of american sports when it comes to the covid uh you know pandemic and so from his standpoint he was trying to reclaim his reputation, trying to get his life back together, really. I mean, it was just a wild whirlwind for him. And, you know, at the same time, there was questions 
would Utah be able to go forward with both Rudy and Donovan Mitchell? Because Donovan Mitchell was so upset about testing positive himself and kind of blaming Rudy in those early moments. And so, you know, we talked about all of that. I'll always be struck. I mean, the, the carelessness of Rudy Gobert in that video, I think everybody remembers that. He learned his lesson. He really did. I mean, when I went to go interview him, it was right after practice. And I was just kind of hanging out by the side of the gym, waiting for him to you know, finish up eating a post-practice meal. And when he was finished, I'll never forget how diligently he wiped down the chair that he was using as a table with a wet wipe. And he was just going forward and backwards and forward and backwards, almost as if he was like, you know, on a riding lawnmower, you know, cutting through a, a field of grass. I mean, just so precise in how he wanted to clean up after himself. And it was just like the exact opposite of that guy who hadn't cared and had touched everybody's microphones and had been associated with this reckless behavior. And so to me, I could just tell that the pandemic and that experience had changed him as a person. And I thought that he was very honest and, and forthright in the interview. And, and certainly that's in the book. And I have other conversations, uh, Michelle Roberts with the Players Union and, uh, you know, uh, Mark Tatum, the deputy commissioner of the NBA and, and other people, Chris Paul as well, kind of along the way. But to me, I, I thought Rudy really represented, you know, the NBA and COVID probably better than any other single person. Ben, I want to shift focus to a team that wasn't in the bubble, unfortunately, well, the Golden State Warriors, who this pod is, is, is based off of. Obviously, last season, they were they were terrible. You know, the no Steph Curry, no Klay Thompson, but they knew that going in. When you're looking at, at what's happened with them this season, the Clay injury obviously threw everything off. And, and I think they had other plans and, and maybe looked at it that, you know, we could make different moves here during the season. They would have probably used the disabled player exception that they had. They obviously elected not to do that. When you look at, at what's happened with, with the Dubs this season, and they're hanging on, most likely going to get in into one of the play-in spots. We had, that remains to be seen where they exactly end up being seated. But when you look at what's happened with the Warriors this season, what is the sentiment around the league? Are, 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 they, are people looking at them? Because I know Steph Curry's been great. There's no doubt about that. But when, when the, the mood around the team, they've been so up and down. I mean, we saw them get blown off, and that was the, the doors blown off them by, by Dallas in, in their last time out, and that was going to be up to date the biggest game of the season. But when you're looking at the, the sentiment around the league, are people looking at the Warriors now? And, and you had mentioned this earlier that, you know, you were, you were covering the Warriors during their championship runs with Durant, and they were the center of the NBA world. Is do you think they'll be able to get back there when they get a healthy clay or, or is there is a sentiment right now? The Warriors are just are too far off and they're a fringe playoff team at this point. Well, look, they're almost exactly who I thought they would be coming into the season with the wild swings of up and down. You know, when Steph has it going, they're really, really hard to beat. And when other things aren't working out so well, they're pretty easy to beat. And I kind of pegged them as a, a play in bubble team, you know, right around 500 before the season. And they've been, you know, right on that mark pretty much the whole way, you know, to me, you know, this is probably not what Warriors fans want to hear. To me, the dynasty ended when KD left and Clay got injured. And then whatever comes next is a new era. You know, I just didn't think it was realistic or, you know, smart for that organization to try to extend that thing and just tell themselves, hey, we're going to be able to keep this thing rolling forever. Um, I thought that was kind of an opportunity that they needed to, like, look in the mirror, self-assess, retool a little bit and go forward. Um, I think the, probably the most frustrating aspect of this year has been the James Wiseman experience because it's so tricky to uh, balance the development of a skilled and talented young player against the desire to win in the short term. And for me, I was completely fine with, you know, not chasing victories and just letting Wiseman settle in because ultimately if you can get him up to speed in two or three years, 
that's a pretty good path towards, you know, getting back at your, into that title conversation. But, um, you know, it just didn't really play out that way. He wasn't as ready as I thought he would be. You know, you could definitely make a strong argument. They've been a lot better as a team since, uh, you know, he's been out. And, you know, that's going to be a tricky challenge for them when he comes back to keep his confidence up and to keep him feeling like invested in, and to just, you know, try to find a role for him that doesn't come at the expense of the team or, or to create lineups that are really beneficial for everybody. It's not an easy challenge. And they're kind of stuck right now, I think, from an identity standpoint. I don't really view them as a top contender for next season. You know, I think that they're, they're going to be better, um, certainly with Clay, than they are this year. And they could be a lot better, frankly. But uh, I think that there's other teams, you know, if you just look at how Brooklyn's lined up its talent, or even the Lakers, um, you know, where they've been and, and some of these other rising teams like the Denver Nuggets possibly, um, you know, being maybe just a cut above, you know, where Golden State would be. And even teams like Milwaukee and Philly, where like their cores are kind of aligned and, uh, you know, they've got people under contract. They, they sort of know how they want to play. They're just in cleaner situations, I think, than Golden State. But I do think next year will be a lot more fun. There will be a lot more wins. There'll be fewer head-scratching, annoying losses. And I think, you know, everybody's excited to see Clay back on the court. When it comes to Wiseman, you mentioned that as well. I mean, I know he, he struggled and, and the Warriors, I mean, the underlying numbers with him off the, off the court are much better. And, and, you know, that's just, that's a fact. You can't argue that. And, and you know, he only had three games of, of experience in college at, at Memphis. But when you look at, at, at his fit, do you think he'd be able to reach all-star potential? Or do you think they should have went for a guy like LaMelo Ball? and maybe add another a guy who fits in the positionless basketball realm that, that we're kind of seeing in, in today's NBA. Yeah, I've been writing a lot about like, where do you draft big men, um, you know, in terms of those high picks? Because if you look at the hit rate on bigs in these last five, six, seven drafts, it's not great, you know? And I, I've already had some talent evaluators tell me, no, Wiseman's just not going to get there. Um, he's not going to be a big time impact making star type player. And I like to reserve judgment a little bit on that, but you know, you're looking at, you know, Marvin Bagley or DeAndre Ayton compared to some of these other, you know, playmaking guards that come out in their classes. And it's like kind of a no brainer. Who would you rather have? I mean, who's making a bigger impact early? Who's going to drive more victories? It's just tough as a big, um, you know, in this modern NBA. Now, it's not impossible, though. We're seeing, you know, MVP caliber play from Jokic and Embiid. And so if you're a really skilled overall offensive threat, um, you, you can still do a lot of damage. I think that's kind of the issue with Wiseman is, uh, you know, you would want to see if you're going to draft a player that high, you want to see some level of playmaking ability, or you want to see like an elite defensive versatility aspect, or you want to see some outside shooting, which I know he showed off a little bit at times. I mean, those are kind of the skills that I think people are valuing in big men right now. And he just doesn't check a lot of those boxes. And you, know, you can come into this draft with a player like Evan Mobley from USC, where he's a very versatile defensive player, good shot blocker, uh, he can dribble the ball a little bit, score, go into the basket, and and maybe people would view him as you know a better long-term prospect than a guy like uh, uh, Wiseman. And I think that would be a fair assessment just because of uh, what's being asked of big guys these days. You know, I didn't see Lamelo being this good uh, this early either, so I don't want to like kill Golden State's front office for that. And we still have to make sure he can stay healthy and, and play at the same level impact-wise as he did early in his rookie year. But I definitely think that that pick is, you know, kind of ripe for second guessing. And he's going to have a lot to prove as he goes forward. Uh, you know, at the same time, he's talented. Like you can see it. I think he's got the ability to be a stretch five knockdown three point shooter like that. Can, that's in his uh, forecast. And if he's that player, that will be helpful. And if you turn him into a nice screen setter, a dive guy on offense and a three point shooter, like you'll take that. I just 
think he needs to make a lot of progress on the defensive end, but pretty common uh, for young big men. And, and certainly for, you know, guys from the last five drafts, we haven't seen a ton of really big impact defensive players, uh, you know, at that big position, you know, a guy like Jaron Jackson Jr. was thought to be that when he was coming in and we're still waiting for him to kind of manifest into that type of player as well. So it's tricky business. I think the safe answer when you're drafting at the top like that is to go with guards and, and, and wing playmakers. And I think that's probably why Cade Cunningham's looking like the number one pick this year and, and why a player like Jalen Suggs got so much attention during the NCAA tournament. I think it's just a lower risk proposition for a front office. When you look at the dubs going into the offseason now, obviously they have Minnesota's top three protected pick this year, which conveys to being unprotected in, in 2022. Do you think that Bob Myers will look to, because this has been a debate amongst Warriors fans, you know, a lot even throughout the season, because I think everybody, like you, like you mentioned, I think everybody knows they're not a championship contender, uh, although it will be fun to see Steph in a seven-game series. So I am hoping that they at least get in so we can see him go off for 40 or 50 and steal a couple of games himself. But when you're looking at their their plan going into the offseason, do you think it's best for Myers to, you know what, let's keep that pick. Let's add a second guy. We can, we can a young guy that hopefully they can build with, with Wiseman, and then transitioning out of the Curry, Draymond Green, Clay Thompson phase. Or do you think they'll look at maybe using that pick as a, as a, as an asset to try and bring in an established superstar to play along these guys to maybe stretch Steph Curry's window and, and hopefully a healthy Klay Thompson. That's remains to be seen as well, but that they can maybe look at trying to add another championship here in the next three or four seasons. Look, I think if you've got Steph Curry playing like this, I mean, still at a near MVP level and you've got an ownership group that has, you know, incredibly deep pockets, you should be as aggressive as possible in the trade market. There's, there's really no doubt in my mind about that. Um, and so, you know, from that standpoint, you know, their pick, uh, Minnesota's pick, I mean, you know, Wiggins, uh, Wiseman, I mean, all those guys, potentially, if you're putting them together in a package, could get you somebody pretty good. I think the challenge right now, though, and I think this is somewhat influenced by the pandemic is, you know, I'm not sure exactly how many players are going to be able to be traded, you know, in that kind of a situation. I mean, you look back at last year's offseason. You know, a guy like Drew Holiday was the biggest guy to move before the season, before Harden actually got moved, uh, you know, during the season. And, you know, I think the price has become so high on those guys that like, the, you know, you're, you're almost in like constant bidding wars just to keep up with the Joneses. And so it really has to be the right star. And then a whole bunch of stars have responded to this pandemic by signing long-term extensions, right? So they're not going anywhere. They're pretty much locked in. And so some of those dream targets who you might've had in free agency, or you might have hoped that you could swing a deal, have said, look, I want, you know, I want the big payday and I just want to stay put. And, and that makes it trickier. I mean, there's not a bunch of obvious names who are out there in terms of, uh, you know, targets. I think Beal gets brought up a lot uh, in Washington, but, you know, the Wizards have been adamant. They don't want to trade him. And now they're on their little bit of a, a playoff push of their own. So if he's not available, who's left? I think that's a really fair question right now. And this kind of thing goes through waves. You know, we see a lot of player movement and a whole bunch of stars were traded or, or moved a couple of years ago. And then I think maybe we're going to be heading for a little bit of a lull period. And that could make it tricky for Golden State. But if I was their front office, I would be shopping those picks relentlessly, trying to get whatever I could and trying to give Steph, you know, one or two more cracks at it here while he's still playing at a super elite level. Ben, final one for you. I want to get into into your kind of your personal journey and and your career. You started off with one of our sister sites at SB Nation, Blazers Edge. Um, you know, you, you've worked your way up. That was back in 2007. You started, so you know, going on 15 years now, or 14 years, going on 15. And in terms of being in the in the sports media industry, and you've seen all the changes. You know, going from where we're at the more traditional sense, I would say back in in 2005, 2010 to 
the digital age that we've seen now. You know, you're working for the Washington Post as a national NBA writer. As I mentioned, you've been doing that since 2018. But when you look at where you've ended up and and your personal journey, like you mentioned, you know, being in the bubble and and covering uh, all these NBA finals and and you know having access. Where do you look at like, yourself? Are you, are you, how thankful are you and how crazy of a ride has it been for you over the last, you know, 14, 15 years? No, I mean, I've, I'm, I'm so lucky that the gratitude is off the charts. I mean, just even holding the book in my hand, it's a really surreal experience. I think a lot of authors compare it to like, you know, being a parent for the first time and I'm not a parent. So this is like the closest I've got to a child and, uh, you know, getting some feedback on the book from people who have, have got a chance to read it already has been so gratifying. And so, um, you know, absolutely. To me, it's kind of like a milestone moment. And I look back on some amazing times at Blazers Edge. You know, I spent years and years there cranking out stories until 2 a.m., 3 a.m., you know, writing these really intense uh, game recaps after every single game and, uh, you know, getting like my uh, my feet wet in locker room experiences with interviews and, uh, you know, the scrums and all that stuff. I mean, it, it feels like a totally different lifetime ago. And I always cherish those memories. I'll, I'll be very thankful to Dave Deckard at Blazers Edge, you know, for my entire life, because he gave me an opportunity when he really didn't have to, uh, to kind of hop on board and, and cover some of those teams, which were great teams, by the way. I mean, Brandon Roy, Greg Oden, uh, LaMarcus Aldridge. I mean, they're kind of a, a what could have been team, but just a, a great group to kind of come in with as a young writer and, and learn from and, and watch them grow. And, you know, LaMarcus Aldridge, you know, retiring this season, kind of brought the whole thing full circle for me because I remember covering him, I think his second year or third year in the league. And so it's amazing that he's made it as far as he did. And, and uh, you know, it was sad to see him step away uh, when he did as well. But I just hope people like this book. You know, I think if you're a basketball fan, you're a diehard, there's going to be a lot in there for you. And if you're someone who, uh, you know, was struggling at times with the pandemic or, you know, trying to make the adjustments to your daily life and I think you're probably going to, you know, relate to some of the stuff that I have to say there as well, because, you know, like I mentioned, it's a first person story where I'm kind of putting my heart and soul into it. So hopefully there's a little bit of something for everyone. And, you know, to me, I'm, I'm really glad I had this time capsule look at the bubble that will kind of hold up for history. And that maybe, you know, future generations of basketball fans, you know, people who are carrying the SB Nation network, you know, 20 years from now, and they'll be able to look back and say, oh, this is why they went to Disney World. Oh, this is what happened once they were down there and get kind of a, a close-up look at LeBron's fourth title and just a really memorable playoffs. Yeah, and I think, you know, Ben, you know, just based off reading your work in, in general, I'm looking forward to checking it out. And I know a ton of people I work with at, at SB Nation, you know, we, we've talked about it and, and we're all looking forward to, to kind of getting to know more about it because you mentioned this is going to be historic. I think we're still stuck in, in the pandemic mindset of, you know, we want to get out of this and hopefully people are healthy and safe. And once things do get opened up, I think people are going to start looking back at this. And like you mentioned, I think historically and, and want to know more inf information about it. So I, I think this book will definitely stand the test of time. Uh, I want to thank you so much for doing this. It's been so cool getting to know you and getting to know kind of your backstory. And, and, and thanks for hopping on and doing this with us. It was my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. And I wish you all the best and stay safe and all that good stuff. All right, that's Ben Golliver. He's a national NBA writer with the Washington Post. Don't forget, you can catch his book, Bubble Ball, Inside the NBA's Fight to Save a Season. It's going to be officially released on May the 4th, but I will send out the link. Uh, we'll put that into the uh, podcast description on Golden State of Mind. You can pre-order your copy, and you can follow Ben on Twitter at Ben Golliver. Don't forget, as well, subscribe to our podcast network. You can catch us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, wherever you get your fix. And of course, check out goldenstateofmind.com. That does it for this episode. We'll be back with you guys again next week. We'll